Welcome back to this Tuesday's Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I'm your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by the award-winning Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm swell. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and non-troversies, uh, the big news over the Thanksgiving break was the firing of Melissa Barrera from Scream 7 for social media posts about the Israeli-Hamas war, a nugget buried deep in a variety story that was about all sorts of things related to Israel, Palestine, Hamas, etc. There was a little nugget about Barrera being, quote, quietly dropped as the star of the next Scream film, end quote, by Spyglass for engaging in what they described as anti-Semitic tropes, including the suggestion that Jews control the media, uh, and Barrera's supporters say she was merely speaking out against, quote, genocide, end quote. Barrera was dropped not only by the studio, but also her publicist. And this is also around the same time that Susan Sarandon was dropped by her agent for saying that, you know, it's good for Jews to feel a little afraid right now so they can get a taste of how Muslims feel. These two droppings, if you want to call them that, are a clear echo of the post-Me Too environment when anybody credibly accused of an infraction became too toxic to be associated professionally with. Um, the first thing to unpack here is what precisely Barrera uh, posted on Instagram. In addition to sharing a story that claimed the Holocaust is just distorted and inflated in order to boost the Israeli arms industry, here is what she said about the media. Quote, Western media only shows you the Israeli side. Why do they do that? I will let you deduce for yourself, end quote. It is, I suppose, nominally debatable what she's hinting at here, but as a Jewish friend in the biz texted me, there's enough of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge thing here to make it pretty clear she's saying precisely what Spyglass said she said, uh, which is that Jews control the media and they silence opposition voices. The insinuation here, particularly in the light of the rest of her posts on social media, seems pretty clear to me. The second question is the more pertinent one, I think. Is that enough to get somebody fired? And I'm of two minds on this. On the one hand, I think now, as I've always thought, right, that having a dumb opinion on something entirely unrelated to your job should not get you fired from that job. That's just a good general rule to have. I think Barrera is probably nudging right up to the line of anti-Semitism in her suggestion. Uh, and I'm sorry, like, I, I understand, you know, people were arguing that, but let's not be obtuse about it, please. But also, I, I don't think you're going to really convince anyone that she's wrong by firing her. It's a real problem. Frankly, if it weren't for the fact that Jenna Ortega had e either quit the series in solidarity or moved on from the next installment thanks to scheduling commitments, depending on who you want to listen to, uh, I figured there was a pretty good shot Barrera would actually be rehired after everyone saw what she had put on Instagram. On the other hand, though, I find it hard to take seriously people who are muttering darkly now about a new blacklist after the last few years in which pressure campaigns have routinely been organized in order to get lots and lots of people fired for stepping out of the line of acceptable liberal orthodoxy. Uh, like the people who have been crowing about the rise of, uh, you know, accountability culture, quote unquote, are how we got here. If you were calling for Gina Carano to get fired from the Star Wars shows, I'm not that interested in your opinion on Melissa Barrera. If you were calling for artists to boycott Spotify on the, the Joe Rogan deal, I'm not that interested in your opinion on Melissa Barrera, right? If you were calling on Netflix to drop Dave Chappelle because you thought his stand-up went too far, again, not that interested. Consistency might be the hobgoblin of little minds, but on issues of free speech, it really is one area where consistency matters. And this is precisely why it matters. You do not always know who is going to be in charge of who can say what. Alyssa, let's deal with the first part of this first. Do you think what Barrera said was clearly or just, you know, ambiguously beyond the pale? 
You know, I have not said a lot about the atrocities of October 7th, the Israeli response to it, in part because I don't know what's that useful for me to say. I'm a parenting columnist and, you know, a a movie podcaster. And also because, you know, I think I've been trying to work through my own response to these events, you know, how they have you know, influenced my sense of my own Jewish identity, of media responsibility. It's, I think, I want to just take a deep breath and acknowledge that the events of October 7th were really horrific. The suffering of civilians in Gaza is really horrific. People are having intense, off-the-cuff, in some cases ill-considered and ill-informed responses to this. And because of the way we live now, people feel a lot of pressure to speak out on social media or just the impulse to speak out on social media has become so natural that people don't even bother to question it. You know, I think saying that, you know, the media only depicts the Israeli side of the story is just not accurate. You know, I think my own publication, The Washington Post, has done really amazing reporting about the extent to which the death toll in Gaza is really being felt by women and children because the Gazan population is incredibly young. It's reported on the choices parents of premature babies at Al-Shifa who are being treated at Al-Shifa have had to make. So that's something that's just, it's not true. It's ill-informed to say it. And yeah, I think saying that it's obvious that the news media in the U.S. only presents the views of Israelis because nudge, nudge, wink, wink, because Jews control the media I think that's anti-Semitic. I think it's not something people should say, both because it's not true and because it's anti-Semitic. You know, saying that the Holocaust is distorted and exaggerated, that's the kind of statement, if you're going to amplify that, like, what what do you mean by that? I would really like to know what Melissa Burr means by that, right? And I think it's reckless and I think it's really sad that someone would sort of mouth off in a lazy, careless way like that and think that it is productive or meaningful solidarity or useful to Palestinians in any way, right? I mean, what's a saying that Jews control the media do for, you know, Palestinian parents who've been separated from their premature babies because that's the way their kids can be in a place where there is a hospital that is neither, you know, a place where Hamas is showing up, nor in danger of having no electricity, right? I mean, what what does any of this do for anybody for the cause of peace? I feel really sad for everyone who's having a strong reaction and responding in a way that makes it harder for us to get anywhere productive. I'm sorry. That's all sort of a tangent. I think those statements are dumb and bad. And I wish Burra, an actress I, whose work I admire, had something more productive to contribute to this wrenching, awful, intractable, miserable conversation. This gets to, to, to your first point here, which is that there really isn't a whole lot of productive stuff that can be done from this, which is, I think, why people are, uh, you know, shooting, out. shooting off. At the, at the shooting from the hip. Uh, but all right, so let's set that that question of it aside. Bad thing, don't say those things, whatever. The question then becomes like, all right, what's the proper response here? I mean, I like, again, my my 
own personal feeling on this is that people should not be fired for things that they say that are unrelated to their job. Again, like all of these things, you always get into edge cases. You know, if he's running, if somebody's running around the streets dropping the end bomb, that's gonna that's gonna cause a lot of trouble for people. That people aren't gonna like that. You know, you might wind up with counter boycotts, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, I do. I have to say, I sit here and I find myself, Peter, struggling against the urge to like step away from my commitment to free speech and just be like, well, what did you dummies expect to happen? I find myself in a very a very curious place where I am uh, struggling very hard to maintain my own principles here while also trying to point out to people like, this is the world that you want and we're living in it. Could you maybe want a different world? Before Peter answers that, I mean, I almost wonder if an appropriate response here would be a sort of norm resetting experience. Like, I don't know what it would be like for Melissa Burra to go out on the press tour for the next Scream movie and to have a vigorous entertainment press that asked her, okay, what did you mean by that? At every single stop. Because I wonder if enough of that happened, if people's social media teams, if they would personally sort of recalibrate and say, okay, maybe the norm, because the norm has really been said that people do have to have a statement or a position on everything. And maybe what we need is some norm resetting in the form of like vigorous speech that reminds people that they don't. What do you make of this, Peter? So, Sonny, I I know that your personal impulse is always to throw stupid things that people do back in their faces when the time seems right, like when it's like, oh, this is going to bite you, right? Like, this is going to come back. And I get it. And uh, I will say that even in my dark, darkest moments, I may even like sort of share a little bit of that kind of emotional impulse but counter canceling is a bad idea. It's a bad idea for two reasons. One is it doesn't convince anybody. It's just practically bad. You don't win any arguments. You don't succeed in converting people. And the, the thing that you need to do, the, the, the best response to bad speech is more speech. It's just more speech, not shutting down anyone's speech. It's also just the only way to maintain a principled stance. It doesn't mean that you don't have a right to speak in a literal sense of your rights are taken away. Your opinion becomes invalid and, and like not worth paying attention to if you suddenly change your tune on this stuff whenever the tables have turned, right? Like the whole point of free speech, both as a kind of legal regime, but also as a kind of cultural idea, is that it protects the worst stuff is that it it is a protection for the thing that is totally out of favor is the thing that is uh, incredibly offensive the thing that is awful and you know what this was a bad and stupid and awful political opinion expressed by someone who shouldn't have been expressing a political opinion uh, now you shouldn't fire people for their bad and stupid political opinions like that's that's i think a, a pretty straightforward thing there may be there may be reasons to to fire somebody in some narrow cases not so much because they've expressed a, a bad political opinion but because they've harmed the reputation of your product your company your industry whatever and they and like you really need them to not do that you know uh, you are right, Sonny, that people who argued for or defended the firing of people for political opinions on the right, uh, they were wrong. They were really, really wrong. And while we shouldn't try to stop them from speaking further, we also shouldn't listen to them or pay them any attention at all. The bigger lesson to me is um, in some ways something like what Alyssa was getting at, which is 
that the old conventional wisdom captured best and most famously by Michael Jordan when he said, well, you know, Republicans buy shoes too, is that everyone who isn't a political commentator professionally ought to stop playing pundit. Like stick to sports and stay in your lane were phrases that got made fun of for the last decade or so. Because, of course, oh, people have this great, great obligation to speak out for against injustice. But no, actually, it's a good idea for industries and for prominent people and for folks who like are, are not selling political argument who aren't in that business. It's a good idea for them to just stick to the thing that they are doing. And that's especially true in the era of social media, which amplifies all of this stuff and gives everybody a platform for absolutely everything. I mean, it's really telling that at least some of the posts that were mentioned uh, by Variety as uh, being part of the stuff that she was fired for were not posts that she wrote themselves, but instead were things that she shared that other people had written. They were retweets or re-Instagrams or whatever the heck we call them on whichever platform she... Whatever uh, you do they, on Instagram. Uh, they were, they, she was re-Xing, I guess, because now that's what we got to call it all, right? And, you know, and this is this is a real kind of sea change in our culture. Yes, celebrities have always had opportunities to share their political opinions, you know, when they get asked about stuff, when they go on tour to talk about their new movie. Uh, but they just have so many more opportunities now. It's just sort of always there and always possible for them to say something to the whole world because they've got Instagram and Twitter and whatever else in their pockets. And I think it's one thing, you know, to say dumb stuff on your private group chat or at a cocktail party with, you know, on the phone with a friend, like this is, and it's a different thing when you say it in public. But like I said, shouldn't be fired for your dumb, bad, even offensive political opinions. You can maybe make a case Maybe that in some instances, some people should be let go from projects because they are damaging the financial prospects of that project. And and like, I don't think that's necessarily totally illegitimate. But if you want to maintain a culture of free speech, then you have to defend it for the stuff that you hate. Uh, you have to be consistent about it. And you got to say, look, people have a right to their bad and dumb opinions. But Peter, you, you, the, the carve out that you have labeled here is the whole problem, right? Yes, because this is true. for the last several years. And, you know, you can even go further back. That. You could go to the Dixie Chicks, right? And 9-11. Or you could go, you know, uh, back to you could go back to the blacklist, right? Uh, the, uh, of, of the communist right. The argument that will be made counter to this is, well, I, 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 you say that it's OK if if somebody who is hurting the brand gets fired. But like if Gina Carano is out there. Uh, insulting, you know, millions of progressives and people who say they're going to cancel their Disney Plus memberships and they're they're going to, you know, they're they're not going to go see her movies. Well, of course she has to be fired. The thing I think that annoys me the most. A friend, a friend put it this way to me in DMs. I won't I won't name him here. So I want to I want to get him in any trouble. But the thing that is most grating about this is the gleefulness with which supposed lack of living up to one's principles is thrown back into the face of people, right? How many how many folks were like, oh, look at these progressives being fired from their college positions. Where are the Harper's letter signers now? Well, most of them were opposed to that. Uh, you know, and and those same people are going to be in six months arguing for somebody to be fired because they did or said or supported the wrong thing. Like that is just a guaranteed thing that is going to happen. And without living and working on the same cultural agreement that free speech as a concept and as a legal regime is good and proper and what we should all be striving for, 
it is deeply frustrating sure. to, to keep having these arguments. And again, why I have to like very explicitly talk myself back into supporting free speech every time one of these people gets fired. Because I'm like, I, I like it's it's maddening. It's impractical, but it, the, here's the thing: it doesn't win. Any, it doesn't win you any hearts and minds. It's impractical. It's also going to degrade the culture of free speech if you don't support it all the time. And this is why I think there sh that we need to go back to a norm of where the expectation is that if you are someone who is starring in uh, some ironic horror movies, your business is not to comment on political and world events, and you should never fire someone for having a bad political opinion. You get fired for costing the company a lot of money by being an idiot in a in a way that was totally egregious and unnecessary. Can I offer sort of a slight amendment to what you're saying, Peter? Because I don't necessarily yeah. think the solution is for, you know, all entertainment figures to have no political opinions. I think it's to have an ecosystem where there are franchise movies. And if you want to star in one of those, maybe you sort of keep some of that stuff to yourself, if that's what you think it means, you know, to be successful and viable in that industry, but also to have an industry with other options. So you can be someone like Jane Fonda, for example, who, you know, whatever you may say about her behavior during the Vietnam War, and in particular, her trip to North Vietnam, you know, as someone whose politics are clearly incredibly important to her, has prioritized that, has made sacrifices in her acting career to, you know, devote her time to climate activism, to other things that she cared about. An environment in which, you know, people in public life, in sort of entertainment public life, have serious, sustained political commitments that they're willing to make some sacrifices in order to be able to pursue makes for a better discourse and also, frankly, <laughs> makes for a more interesting version of Hollywood, right? I mean, I think it's good that Clint Eastwood can have his opinions and can make movies in his 90s, right? Like, I, And I think an environment in which more people had sustained serious political commitments rather than random fired off opinions on a lot of different things, and that you could have sort of options as an actor, whether you were going to be apolitical and do, you know, be in a Marvel movie, or you could be someone who was maybe going to have a smaller career, but there would be independent and more sort of 30 to $50 million projects where your politics wouldn't be as much of a risk. I think that would be a healthier entertainment culture and speech environment. Better opinions for all. I think that's fair to some degree, and perhaps I was a little too strong. I, I, these things are difficult to navigate, but that's sort of how speech, you know, always is. And you want to kind of, you want to find a, an equilibrium that maximizes the opportunity for people to say what they want and have disagreements and not, you know, be not be punished in terms of losing their job for it. Um, and at the same time, I I also just think that it's it's pretty weird that we have like a a kind of that it's normal for for celebrities who have no particular expertise or or professional obligation to be weighing in on the most controversial political events seem to think that that's both not just normal but like a, a good that they are adding what what do you yeah. like what does she think she's adding to the world what is why is this 
I don't know. I, I in some ways, in some ways, like someone could throw that back at me. Peter, what are you adding to the world? You just talk all the time on podcasts all day long. You send out your newsletters and you publish, you know, right? Like you're editing people at your magazine, right? Like you're at the same time. I do think there's some difference here. And like there is a kind of I think a lot about maybe this is a way to think about it. Um, as I have grown older, even in a business that is like that is in theory about giving platforms to individuals to say what they want about politics or say this, what they believe about political and cultural controversies, I have thought more and more about institutional responsibility and being a good steward of your institution, whatever that institution is. And sometimes that institution really is you. For example, Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford is not anything other than Harrison Ford. He's there to support Harrison Ford. But sometimes your institution is the product you're making with a whole bunch of other people. And being good at your job, especially in the media industry, but I think this is true all over, is it's to some extent, of course, you're always trying to kind of to always trying to promote yourself and make things more like yourself. At the same time, the job is to is to do what's best for the project and for the institution. And maybe sometimes that is talking about the politics of something. And maybe sometimes that is weighing in. But this was egregiously unrelated to that. And that's why it seems so frustrating to me. Again, I don't think I actually don't think she should be fired. Uh, but like, this is the kind of thing that I think Hollywood could use less of, which is kind of random weighing in on stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with what you're doing or the, or the kinds of movies you're making or the kind of actor or performer you are. We're running long here, so I want to want to wrap it up. But I do think that one uh, one angle of this that we haven't really talked about is that there has been a real change in what audiences expect from their uh expect from celebrities and actors and athletes they expect statements in support of whatever the latest cause is why have you not supported black taylor lives swift matter why silence is deafening exactly why is taylor swift not speaking out against donald trump why is why haven't you why why won't you wear the ribbon that is a real phenomenon and i think a large part of this is this uh, especially with a youth oriented franchise like scream i i there i i would imagine there is pressure on these they at least they feel a pressure to say something but again that's a that's a debate for another day um we'll we'll come back to that i guess uh all right so what do we think was it is it a controversy or a controversy that melissa Barrera was fired from scream 7 as a result of her anti-israel instagram posts Alyssa, it's a controversy because we still have not sorted out these norms peter controversy Obviously a controversy. People should stop being fired for political opinions. And also people should have fewer political opinions. I should have fewer political opinions probably. Yeah. Uh, make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode on great directors and how much consistency matters when it comes to determining their greatness. Speaking of great directors of questionable consistency, on to the main event. Ridley Scott's Napoleon, his epic take on the French soldier turned emperor starring Joaquin Phoenix as the titular titan of history. Uh, the movie picks up near the end of the Reign of Terror. Marie Antoinette's about to lose her head. Robespierre's not far behind. And the resultant chaos has created a power vacuum that has left France vulnerable to foreign interference and in turmoil at home. Uh, Napoleon is sent to recapture the city of Toulon from royalists who have been uh, joined by the British Navy and does so with a plum. There's a hint of a different 
sort of movie in this opening act, this opening first 30 minutes or so. We see Napoleon first uh, call the charge on Toulon's walls, and then Ancy joins the battle himself. He's covered in his horse's blood. I just, I want to give people a warning here. Uh, for, for those of you who really love horses, this is probably not the movie for you. Uh, in the opening sequence here, the horse he is riding takes a cannonball to the chest. He is spattered in blood. It's crazy. Uh, he clambers up the wall. He starts swinging away. There are shades of gladiator or Robin Hood here, right? Movies about warriors who are in turn leaders of men. You can see why his men would love a general like this. That that all kind of makes sense and checks out. But Napoleon is decidedly not like those films. Um, it is not a movie about leadership derived from martial brotherhood, uh, or like the previously mentioned ones, Gladiator, Robin Hood, or like Black Hawk Down, right? It is rather about the emptiness of a man who pursues power for the sake of vanity. It is history as farce, and thus has really more in common with Scott's recent 2021 picture, The Last Duel, uh, more than any of the films I've discussed before. Phoenix's Napoleon is less a titan of history and more a tragic clown. It's a little like Gladiator, the movie Gladiator, but from the perspective of Commodus entirely. Whether he's whining about Britain's naval superiority, uh, just some great line reads in this, including, you think you're so great because you have boats, he whines at one point. Just wonderful stuff. Or when he's dismissing a fellow soldier from his tent without dessert because this soldier has informed Napoleon that his wife is cheating on him. Or when he's sprinting, just running like a madman from a bunch of politicians who are beating him up and believe him to be mounting a coup. He comes across as a singularly ridiculous person. Um, but there is a sadness within him. And that sadness manifests uh, as his inability to maintain his relationship with his beloved wife, Josephine, who's played by Vanessa Kirby. It is striking to contrast Napoleon's overeager desire to get into the battle at Toulon with his listlessness at film's end at Waterloo, uh, by which time his wife Josephine has died. Uh, he's lazy. He's tired. He just doesn't really want to do it anymore. As I said last week, I, I don't really care if Napoleon is historically accurate or not. That's of no interest to me, um, just as it is of no interest to Scott. The movie is not a documentary. It is the chronicle of of a man who is driven to absurd lengths by his own vanity, uh, his desire to climb the social ladder and be taken seriously, not only by the people in his country, but the nobles in the rest of Europe. Phoenix is playing Napoleon as a tragic comic, but mostly comic figure. Um, and this picture has, I, I will say the screening I was at, this picture garnered more unexpected and importantly intentional laughs than just about any other movie I've seen this year. It's very funny. While I appreciate that that is not to everyone's liking, and it's not what they expected going into this movie, it is very much to my liking. I don't think this is necessarily a great movie, but it is an interesting and entertaining one, and that matters about as much to me as greatness at this point in the year. Uh, Peter, was your audience as engaged with the comic energy of Phoenix's Napoleon as mine was, or did they just sit there and let the hilarious lines wash over them with no reaction? Uh, I think it was somewhere in between. They were a little bit befuddled because they were expecting something a little more conventional, something more like a traditional Oscar season, uh, Oscar bait war epic. And this movie is, in many ways, exquisite and grand, right? It, just in its imagery. This is the, the some of the battle sequences are really just incredible, despite Scott shooting this movie, maybe not quite frugally, but on a pretty short timeline. Um, and working on, I guess, several other movies, like at least a couple more movies uh, in the future. He, he's got uh, his um, follow-up to Gladiator and a Western in the works, and he's 85 years old. Like, I do, you know, just, just kind of incredible. Um, now, this movie is... 
is just incredible to look at. It's quite funny in a weird and bleak and awkward way. It's also kind of a mess narratively. Uh, uh, we all know there is a four-hour-plus cut coming to Apple+. Plus, and even if I didn't know that, I feel like you can see that a lot was cut here. It just feels choppy and cut up and episodic. But it's also fascinating for a lot of the reasons you said, Sonny. Um, but in part just because it's, it's, a, it's a comic and... Uh, sad portrayal of Napoleon, but also because it's not just a portrayal of Napoleon. I think Scott is trying to say something here about war, but also even more than that, about a particular kind of, uh, call it political, imperial ambition. And it just skewers the hell out of out of people who think that they are born to greatness or who desire it and who can't who cut whose whose lives are built around this climb towards uh, towards something towards a kind of greatness that they want uh, and that they desire. Right. And it portrays Napoleon not as a great conquering hero, not as somebody whose nobility was, you know, uh, was impressive, right? This uh, sort of towering figure riding a horse and you're sort of charging, uh, leading men. No, he was a pathetic little shit in this view of him, right? And his, he was ambitious, yes, but his ambition was driven directly from his insecurities. And that combination of insecurity and ambition, the, the final title card kind of ties all of this together and I think you know nails the point here, which is that combination of insecurity and ambition killed millions and millions of people. And so there's a kind of argument here uh, against political ambition and about how, how that sort of ambition can be both incredibly pathetic on the one hand and also incredibly horrific and i kind of appreciate that argument even if i think the movie is often an episodic kind of um uh, poorly paced mess it's funny that you say poorly paced because i thought it was very well paced in the sense that it goes and it goes it just doesn't stop when i think of a movie as being badly paced i think of it lingering on stuff too long or being too long i agree that it's not slow but what i would say is that there's not a, a big arc here and it doesn't feel propulsive particularly in the way that uh, scott's best work does gladiator doesn't just move it sort of pushes you through a real narrative arc and this movie just sort of is like here's one thing here's the next thing here's the next thing here's the next thing and then there's waterloo well kind of know what's going to happen here and uh and it just sort of feels like each bit is its own little self-contained bit, almost like this was supposed to be a miniseries, which is funny because, of course, Steven Spielberg is making Stanley Kubrick's Napoleon miniseries right now. Yeah. Alyssa, the the recent Scott movie that came to mind again was The Last Duel, and I, it really felt a lot like, I, I wouldn't say Joaquin Phoenix was channeling Matt Damon's character from that film, but it, there is a there is an echo of that that kind of guy who was striving for more and it's all wrapped up in power and sex and money and like into a really ugly and frankly kind of pathetic thing. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I I mean, I loved The Last Duel and I don't really think this in the theatrical cut works as a movie at all, even though I very much enjoyed it scene to scene. Uh, and we haven't talked about Vanessa Kirby's performance as Josephine Bonaparte at all, but she is wonderful in this movie, especially in these early scenes when she is kind of making an accommodation with herself to effectively secure protection in the form of Napoleon. And the two of them are kind of negotiating their marriage. Um, and I do think 
you know, Napoleon is, I mean, I think it's an excellent performance from Phoenix. It gets at that combination of, you know, patheticness and menace. But part of where I think the movie really fails, and this comes up in its very episodicness, is that it doesn't establish the terms of his relationship with anyone except Josephine and to a lesser extent, Paul Barras, who's sort of the politician who's kind of responsible for his rise. And it feels like a real waste because the battle set pieces are filmed, you know, they're filmed incredibly well. But if you don't understand Napoleon's relationships with his marshals, the, you know, sort of key military leaders who worked with him, the battles don't really make sense or have narrative propulsion, right? And so the sort of key debate over the Battle of Waterloo is whether, like, if Marshal Grouchy shows up on time, does Napoleon win and reconquer Europe, right? I mean, Marshal Ney is in this movie, but you have no sense of sort of who he was or what his importance was, what his relationship with Napoleon was like. And characters just sort of, like, pop in and pop out and you know, their relationships to Napoleon are never, there's never even really an attempt to establish them. And so you lose the sense of scale and military history that you kind of ought to have here, right? I mean, you know, you, you don't get a sense of any of the personalities who emerged during the Russian campaign, for example, and how that campaign, even though it was a failure, sort of was this sort of intense crucible of relationships um, between Napoleon and the, you know, the men who commanded with him. You know, I'm not a huge Napoleonic Wars nerd or anything, but, you know, if you want to make an argument about sort of ambition and folly and waste, I think it is useful to establish that, you know, this is not you know, the responsibility of one man, right? I mean, there's a whole system here and there was sort of an eagerness to serve that system and rise in that system. Um, It's also just a total waste to have Rupert Everett show up as the Duke of Wellington at like the last minute in the film, right? I mean, again, you know, I would so much rather see the eight-hour miniseries version of this where, you know, you have England as sort of a power and a character kind of like lurking on the edges of this, you know, see Wellington developing a strategy and that clash between naval and infantry and cavalry power sort of gets set up. Um, Because, you know, this is a movie that sort of leads you to the kind of the rise of England as a continental military power in a way that had really been eroding since, you know, Henry VIII's father. And you don't get that sense of sort of return at all. I mean, the whole thing is just, it's just postcards, right? And they're beautifully filmed, often beautifully acted postcards. But it's, watching this movie is like finding a bunch of postcards in an old drawer and being like, oh, I remember that, a little bit of that. I remember a little bit of that. I remember a little bit of that. There is neither the power of sort of narrative nor argument that you would get in either, you know, a movie that focuses on, one anecdote in Napoleon's career or, or a much deeper and broader explanation of his era. Well, I think in order to portray him as small and pathetic in the way that it wants to, it raises a question that it cannot answer uh, with that portrayal, which is, why did all of these people follow him? Yeah. And it just doesn't 
deal with that because as you said, Alyssa, uh, I, I think you put it nicely, it doesn't give establish his relationship with anyone outside of Josephine. And so we are left with this portrayal of an incredibly pathetic person who somehow or another was able to lead vast armies and a country for years and years and years and get them to, to rally behind him. And you don't really understand why. Here's where I would I would slightly disagree with you, Alyssa, uh, in terms of understanding the battles and why what happened happens, at least within the context of the film. Again, I don't care that much about the history. But what's what's fascinating is watching Napoleon's relationship with Tsar Nicholas, which is this bizarre, like, like, yo-yo up and down, like once one minute they're allies, the next minute they're enemies, then they're allies again, then they're enemies. And it it it, it gets to the capriciousness of so much of this just in general. But it also gets to what was really driving Napoleon, which is this like kind of petty smallness, this like, I cannot believe he would betray me. Um, I'm going to Moscow. And then we're going to we're going to march on from Moscow after that. And like, you know, there's a line where he's so disappointed that Nicholas isn't there to accept his defeat. And he's like, there's some there's there's. What, what is it? There's like greatness and loss or something like that is, is the line. There's there's a line in there where he talks about the dignity of defeat and how frustrated and annoyed he is that uh, that that Nicholas has deprived him of this. But there's also this constant desire to be liked by Nicholas, right? That that whole sequence in his tent where he's talking about uh, he's like relaying an anecdote and and Nicholas is like, you nobody told you that that's something that that's just a story that people tell each other. It's like a, it's an addict, like a, a little life lesson. It's a cliche. It's not, that didn't happen to you. And he's like, no, no, that definitely, that was definitely told to me. It's like this almost always sunny in Philadelphia moment where like just something absolutely ridiculous happens and, and Napoleon insists it's real and true, but it clearly isn't. Again, I find so much of this very funny on a granular level that I'm, I, I have a hard time almost looking at the picture as a whole. I don't know. Many don't. of the individual beats work very well. I don't think they cohere into a coherent whole. They don't cohere into coherence. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they don't, right? It's just, like I said, if you, this movie is great in 10 minute segments and they all kind of work at 10 or 15 minutes at a time. As a two hour and 35 minute experience, it leaves many things to be desired. I'm not upset that I saw the movie. It's, I'm, I think it's, kind yeah. of a failure but it's one of the most interesting failures i've seen in a very long time and I, I this is one of the things about ridley scott is ridley scott's worst movies are still worth watching and this is not one of his worst movies to be clear but it is not one of his best either and there is no there's no ridley scott yeah. movie that is not worth watching at all we'll save that for friday save that for friday all right uh so what do we think thumbs up or thumbs down on napoleon Alyssa? it's not a good movie but thumbs up Peter. Sadly, I have to give it a thumbs down because it's not a good movie. It's thumbs up uh, because, as Peter said, it's it's incredibly entertaining moment to moment. And if the whole thing doesn't quite hang together, that's ah, all right. That's not everything has to hang together all the way. All right. That is it for today's show. Uh, many thanks to our audio engineer, Jonathan Siri, without whom this program would sound much worse. Make sure to swing by Bulwark Plus on Friday for our bonus episode. Tell your friends a strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please come like me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys on Friday. Bye.